Welcome to Life Lessons with Dr. Steve Shell. For 20 years, Dr. Steve's 30-minute radio program, Life Lessons, was heard throughout the United States. Committed to comprehensively teaching through entire books of the Bible, Pastor Steve pulls out the deep, eternal truths in each section of Scripture without skipping over the challenging passages. He applies what is learned clearly and practically so that we're inspired not to just be hearers of the Word, but doers also. Heavenly Father, we ask for your word to open up to us, and we would open up to the word. Lord, we believe every word of this book is God-breathed. It is life to us. And so we ask that our eyes would see and our ears would hear, and we give you hearts that are tender, Lord, that that which is from you would be sown deep in us, and we would, we would live. I ask for the grace to speak faithfully and let you speak through. In Jesus' name, amen. All right. Chapter 13 brings us face to face with the darkest season in earth's history. We have faced many terrible times and endured brutal leaders, but we've never seen anything like what's ahead. For 42 months, that'd be three and a half years, God will withdraw his hand and let the earth experience what rebellious humans have been longing for since the beginning of time, life without God's interference. Woo-hoo! Won't that be fun? Get that old stick in the mud out of the way. Get, get, get that moralistic, old-fashioned God out of, out of the picture, and let's see what happens. Freedom to do things our way. Freedom to worship a God that's more like us, more relevant, more in touch with the times. It sounds like the, there would be 42 months of partying, but another spiritual force quickly steps into the vacuum. Satan arrives in person, and instead of granting religious freedom, he brings a stifling level of spiritual oppression. He demands that everyone worship him or die. And most people worship, wholeheartedly falling under the spell of his deception. Freedom from God ends up bringing slavery to Satan. This chapter gives us a vivid picture of what's to come. But it also raises an ethical question. Why does God give Satan and the Antichrist authority to act for 42 months. Why didn't he send Jesus back before all this took place and spare the world such deception and believers such suffering? The answer teaches us a lot about God and his ways and help us understand forces shaping our own lives as well. Here we go. The dragon, that would be Satan. By the way, I want to step back to one verse. Verse 17 of chapter 12. The dragon was enraged with the woman. Satan was enraged with national Israel. That's who that is. We've been through chapter 12. And went off to make war with the rest of her children. That would be us Gentile believers who keep the commandments of God and hold to the testimony of Jesus. In chapter 12, we've seen Satan cast out of heaven. There was a war in heaven, Michael and the angels against Lucifer and his angels, and Lucifer lost, and was cast down to the earth in person. You say, what was he doing in heaven? He actually had access to the throne of God where he stood there day and night accusing you. He, was the, he is the accuser. So he is bringing a case, calling God to give justice to you for your sin. And thankfully, you have an advocate, Christ Jesus, if you are a believer, at the right hand of God, just saying, he's mine, he's mine. I know his name comes up a lot, but he's still mine. Okay? <laughs> Hallelujah. He's a, he's a good lawyer. All right. So 
that's going on. Well, Satan is cast down to the earth, and it tells us there that he goes after national Israel. It tells us that national Israel gives birth to this believing uh, uh, church of, of Messianic Jews. Uh, we'll see them in the next chapter. And there's a powerful move of God among them. And in order to keep that evangelism going in Israel, God actually hides physical Israel, national Israel, out in the wilderness somewhere, like he did with Pharaoh, people coming out of Egypt. So there's this, this protection going on. But everybody else, here's what's going on with them, is chapter 13. All right, so the dragon here landing down on planet Earth himself stood on the sand of the seashore. That represents the nations, the peoples, the, the unbelieving nations of the world. And I saw a beast coming up out of the sea, having ten horns and seven heads, and on his horns were ten diadems, and on his heads were blasphemous names. And the beast which I saw was like a leopard, make note of that, and his feet were like those of a bear, his mouth like the mouth of a lion, and the dragon, Satan, gave him his power and his throne and great authority. I saw one of his heads, one of the seven, as if it had been slain, and his fatal wound was healed. And the whole earth was amazed and followed after the beast. The Antichrist will take a, a mortal blow, will be killed, but will be raised back to life, resuscitated, as it were. And I'll explain why I think that happens. Verse 4, they worshipped the dragon because he gave his authority to the beast. They worshipped Satan because he gave his authority to Antichrist. And they worshipped the beast, or Antichrist, saying, who is like the beast, who is able to wage war with him? After all, you kill him and he comes back to life. There was given to him a mouth, speaking arrogant words and blasphemies. Authority to act for 42 months was given to him. And he opened his mouth in blasphemies against God to blaspheme his name and his tabernacle, that is, those who dwell in heaven. God dwells in and among his people. And it was also given to him to make war with the saints, to overcome them, and authority over every tribe and people and tongue and nation was given to him. All who dwell on the earth will worship him. We're going to make a note between those who dwell in heaven and all who dwell on the earth. All who dwell on the earth will worship him, everyone whose name has not been written from the foundation of the world in the book of life, of the Lamb who is slain. And anyone who has an ear, let him hear. If anyone is destined for captivity, to captivity he goes. If anyone kills with a sword, with a sword he must be killed. Here is the perseverance and the faith of the saints. We'll explain that later. And then I saw another beast coming up out of the earth, and he had two horns like a lamb, and he spoke as a dragon. This is going to be the false prophet. He will be a high priest, as it were, to the Antichrist, drawing people to worship the Antichrist. He exercises all authority of the first beast in his presence, and he makes the earth and those who dwell in it worship the first beast, the Antichrist, whose fatal wound was healed. He performs great signs so that he even makes fire come down out of heaven to the earth in the presence of men. And he deceives those who dwell on the earth because of the signs which it was given him to perform. So he will do things like, uh, he will tell them to make an image. They'll make a statue to the Antichrist uh, after he has been raised back to life. 
Verse 15, it was given him to give breath to the image, so this image begins to speak like a living being. And when it does speak, it commands that those who refuse to worship it uh, be killed. And he causes all, the small and the great, the rich and the poor, the slave and free, to be given a mark on their right hand or on their forehead. And he buys, provides that no one will be able to buy or sell except the one who has the mark, either the name of the beast or the number of his name. Here is wisdom. Let him who, understands, who has understanding calculate the number of the beast. For the number is that of a man, and his number is 666. And no, I won't be telling you who that is today. That's for another sermon. I can just say, don't get the mark. That'd be a, a good thing. Let's go back to verse 2 a minute. You notice the beast that um, John sees is the leopard. If we were back in the book of Daniel, there would have been four beasts. You recall that, Daniel chapter 7? First was a lion, the second was a bear, and the third was a leopard. The fourth was just an ugly monster, and it happened to be, it's the Antichrist kingdom. All right, the leopard, and I, I, I explain how we get there. But the leopard is the Greek empire. It's Alexander the Great's empire. Alexander the Great, you recall, conquered everything. He died while he was out on a campaign. He, he was drunk and went to sleep in the rain and got pneumonia and died. And they divided his kingdom among his four generals. One named Seleucus was given the area around Israel and all of that area. He then had sons. There was, one was Antiochus I, Antiochus II, Antiochus III, Antiochus IV, and actually it went on. Antiochus IV is the one that the Bible believes most models the Antichrist of any person in history. By the way, if you take Alexander, Seleucus, Antiochus I, II, III, IV, there we go, is number what? Yeah, there you go. It's interesting that he's the sixth in the line of this thing. It's Antiochus Epiphanes, he's called. Epiphanes, the manifest God. He declared himself that. He went into the temple when he, he, he went on a campaign of Hellenizing, making everything Greek. And he went into the temple in Jerusalem and he sacrificed a pig on the altar. And he set up an idol and demanded that the people worship him. I mean, he, was, he, was, he did everything the Antichrist will do. So that when you're in the book of, of, of Daniel, you get into chapters 8 and, and 10 and 11, you'll find that you're, you're, you're reading about this man and you're saying, is that the Antichrist or is that, is that this historical guy? The fact is this historical guy, I think, now this is, this is me, but in Revelation 17, it says that this Antichrist was and then is not during John's time, and then will be the seventh, who is himself an eighth. In other words, he's coming back. The Antichrist will be the return of somebody, that spirit at least. That spirit's coming back again. And I think the reason there's such a blend in the book of Daniel and, and that we're seeing here, what animal is it that comes up out of the sea? It's not an accident that it's the leopard. The leopard represented this Greek empire which Antiochus was the most awful representative. All right, he's got, the feet of, he's got the elements of the other two monsters, too, that were there in Daniel's vision. And the dragon gave him his power and authority. Verse 3, you notice the, the Antichrist will be killed. Somebody's going to have the good sense to assassinate this guy, but he's not going to stay dead. 
He will come back to life. And it's at this point, I think, here's what happens. And this is my speculation again. But I, Satan actually possesses the Antichrist. The Antichrist in the first three and a half years has been a very, very bad man. But at the midpoint, which is where we are right now, we're watching what transpires at the midpoint. At the midpoint, he becomes a monster like the earth has never seen. At the beginning of the three and a half years, he signs an edict of toleration, allowing religions to have some level of free, free practice. At this moment, he's killed very brutally, by the way. The language is strong there. He's really, really struck down. And then he comes back to life. But he comes back to life, I think, with, 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 with Satan possessing him completely. Satan owns him like a, like a glove on a hand. And he is now Satan incarnate. That's where this bizarre stuff begins to take place as we have an incarnation of Satan. Satan always has, verse 4, sought to be worshipped. I give you texts. It's always been his heart. Verse 5, the Antichrist declares himself to be God. Well, of course, Lucifer's been doing that all along. He blasphemes God and those in heaven. Verse 7, a genocidal persecution covers the entire planet. There comes this deal where, where it's the attempt is made to kill every person who will not worship this statue of Antichrist. Jesus says this in Matthew 24. He said, if that persecution were not mercifully, the days were shortened by God. Every, there would be no life left. What he means is there would be complete annihilation of all believers. That's the course the Antichrist sets himself on, is to annihilate every believer. Verse 8, the unsaved will all worship him. And notice how they're, they're described. Whose name has not been written, from either from the, actually in the book of, of life of the Lamb who has been slain from the foundation of the earth, is the way the Greek reads. From the very beginning of time, there has been a book kept. The first names in it, I think, are Adam and Eve. And then you got Abel. And then you got Seth. And then you skip a bit, I think. Somewhere Noah's in there. And you go on down the line. Men and women who have walked with God. Enoch's name would be in there, wouldn't he? There's, there's going to be some great men and women that is recorded. How many today know that your name is in there? There's a record kept. When you give your life to Jesus Christ, when you repent and believe and really mean it, your name goes in the Lamb's book of life. And he will call from that book all the redeemed at that end time. Those that aren't born again do not have the Holy Spirit within them. You know, you say, how can people be so deceived? This is so obvious. There it is in the Bible. You know, I don't think we appreciate how ugly things can get. You know, you look back at Nazi Germany, and you think, what was wrong with the Germans? I mean, come on. Where were they? Why, where, why didn't somebody rise up and say, that's, that's not right? Uh, why didn't somebody, why weren't more people protecting uh, the Jews and, and standing up to him? How did they let it happen? You know, young Germans to this day will ask their parents and gra their grandparents, where were you? Where, what'd you do? Why? 
And people are silent and they're strange. It's bizarre. Nobody really has an answer. You know why? Nobody can quite figure out why they did what they did either. No one's counting on the demonic presence. You see, Hitler wasn't in this thing by himself. He wasn't just a bad man. He was actually an expression of an Antichrist spirit. And you had over Germany, you had not, the people were terrified for their lives, but they were also demonically oppressed. And you find yourself doing stuff and falling into line and cooperating with things that you never in your life believed you'd do. And you look back on it and you think, what was I thinking? You weren't. People, the earth is going to be enshrouded with an oppression like we've never seen. Remember, he had the key to that bottomless pit and he opened it up and out came a smoke of demonic locusts all over the planet. The planet is just rife with this oppression. People are going to do things and allow things and participate in things that in their right mind they never would have thought they would do. So it's, we look at it and we say, oh, come on. No, 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 no. This has been, happened in history. We've, we've seen already this kind of climate. Verse 9 there says the unsaved will, will all worship him. Verse 10 says, however, the believers are to say, anyone who has an ear, let him hear. And what is, what is, he, to, what is he to hear or see? That they will remember that God has permitted this to happen, but that he will soon bring an end and give justice to the oppressors. Verse 11 in this season of faults, Christ, a high priest, as it were, will rise up, drawing the world to worship the Antichrist. He will validate himself by miracles, such as commanding fire or lightning, probably, to strike from heaven. He will order a statue of Antichrist to be set up. Statue will come to life and command those who refuse to worship it to be killed. Uh, those who worship will be given a mark containing the Antichrist's name or a code number on their hand or forehead. Those without it will not be able to buy or sell. They'll be pushed out of the economic system entirely. And the mark will have something to do with the number 666, which in some ways identifies the Antichrist. I think we don't really know who it is uh, because we aren't there yet, unless I hit it there on, on uh, Antiochus. I want to show you three things. The year of God's favor, would you say that? A week, of God's freedom, a week of God's freedom. And a day of God's judgment. A, of God's judgment. a year of God's favor. A week of God's freedom. And a day of God's judgment. That pretty well summarizes the things we're seeing. What is the year of God's favor? It's the year we're in right now. Luke 4.19, Jesus uh, goes to, to Isaiah 50, uh, 61 and, and he quotes from it and he, and, and, and he stops right at that phrase in which he says, I've come to bring the year of God's favor, God's favorable year. What is that? It's this time we're living in in which God is patient. It's the season where God tolerates a great deal of evil in order to allow the harvest of souls to continue. At the same time, he also limits the arrival of the Antichrist's spirit, preventing it from coming to full expression. You know, you say, look at the evil things that are going on. Look at Darfur, and look at uh, Iraq, and look at Afghanistan, and, and on and on. Look at the terrors that are going on. Let me just tell you, you're living, you're living in a time of God's protection. You say, well, why has he let this stuff happen? Because he's given freedom to the human race. But we are living in a time when he is protecting this earth. 
Because when he does lift his hand, you'll realize how much protection's been there. He allows during this season all kinds of, of nonsense, evil, blasphemy. He, he put it up with you in you, didn't he? Think of how much he's put up within us. And, and, and rather than giving us justice, he keeps reaching out to us. And you begin to think, you know, that, that God has no justice in him almost. It's like, why do we, no, we're in a year of God's favor. He's also kept this Antichrist spirit from coming in and, and stopping the process. Why does he have this year? The year, of course, is, is now been 2,000 of them so far. But we're in that year of God's favor. What's going on? It's all about winning souls. This is a time we're living in where God is gathering in souls. How's he doing? Well, he started with 12 with disciples, and they weren't the hottest crowd, but they, they were all right. And today, it's the largest religious movement on the planet. It's amazing, isn't it? It's amazing what's, what's going on. I think the, I don't, I haven't heard recently, because things are ramping up, not going down. My, my figures are probably five, six years old. They were, there was 160,000 people a day coming to Christ. Five or six years ago, I don't know what it is now. All over the world, all over the world, the church is growing and it's growing powerfully. The price to pay is that God puts up with a tremendous amount of evil. We've got weathers going crazy. We've got murderous things. We have some guy shooting up a Virginia Tech campus. What, what horrible things you say. Why does God allow that? Of course it's not God's will. Of course it's not God's will. What it is is God's mercy holding things back, refusing to bring the hammer down in justice on a society that has birthed this kind of junk and opened itself to the enemy because his souls are coming to Jesus Christ. And right now as you live, this, as you breathe right now, the largest number of people are coming to Jesus Christ that has ever come in human history. You are in the greatest in gathering right now. So God's, God's wise God is righteous. He is righteously waiting, righteously holding back while his sons and daughters come in and he won't close it down to the last one's in, I'll tell you. That's the nature of our Heavenly Father. He knew, he knew your name before the worlds were made. He waited for you. He waited for you. That's why he didn't bring it down earlier. Aren't you glad? Yes. Yeah, well, you may have... I don't know when he's coming exactly. I don't know how many more generations there are. I'm glad he waited for my grandchildren. And I'll bet you I got great-grandchildren and great-great-grandchildren. And I, bet, I hope he waits for them too if that's in his plan. Don't you? Yes. Yeah, this is the mercy of God. But it won't go on forever. Know this. There is an end. That's what we're reading right now. There is a year of God's favor, but there's also a week of God's freedom. At the end of the age, there will be a final seven-year period of time. We saw it will indeed be seven years. Remember I took you back to Daniel, and I sh showed you his prophecy of 70 weeks, 77s, and we went through that calculational process and realized that it, it literally predicted Palm Sunday, 32 AD, April 6th, down to the T. I mean, it's, it is seven years. It's not even, it's not maybe. He's, this is a seven-year period at the end of history. 
God will allow a one-world government to arise. That's what we're seeing right there in chapter 13. He, the Antichrist will issue, an, to begin with, issue an edict of toleration for other religions. We've seen that. And then, of course, at this point in chapter 13, right at the midpoint, the final 42 months, the devil will possess him and they'll explode out that horrible persecution, a genocide against all who refuse to worship him. Now, my question, why did God allow these 42 months? Wouldn't it be nice if, God, if Jesus Christ came back 42 months earlier to sort of save the world this whole nonsense? I mean, this is quite an episode. Why did we have to go through it at all? Here's my answers. You can see whether you, whether you agree. Number one, to show us what would have happened if he had not been protecting us all along. There's a lot of people that have, have accused God of being faithless. Where if God's a good God and if he's in heaven, why does he let this stuff happen? Well, he's going to put it in perspective, shall we say. He's going to just say, you want to see what happens when my merciful hand's off this thing? Have a look. And you're going to watch things go and it, and it, it will be horrific. People, we are living under his protective care. And it's quite a balance between letting humans have freedom and protecting this thing and keeping it going so that he can have sons and daughters in eternity. That's the balance that he's working out all the time. Secondly, to let human evil show itself for what it really is. You know, everybody, everybody wants God out of the way. They want, they want their freedom. And so he says, all right, I'll give you over. I'll let you have your evil. I'll let you, let you see what happens when I'm not intruding in your lives. Adam and Eve, children of, of Adam, I'll pull my hand off. And what, what takes place? What we didn't count on is we thought we'd have a party when he was gone. Instead of a party, somebody shows up. Somebody crashes our party. Satan himself. You see, there's no such thing as a spiritual vacuum. We've learned that already personally, haven't we? People who try to live without God, people who try to live free, say, I don't want God telling me what to do. I'll handle it myself. I'm a free agent. And you know what they discover? They become increasingly addicted, increasingly in bondage, increasingly less and less like themselves. Something takes over and they begin to die inside. There is no neutral spot. There's no middle ground. You either walk with the Lord or, you, or the enemy puts you in his control. He is a slave driver. He will take control. And so you watch some of I've watched my own generation. People that we were the flower children. People, we were so free. Nobody was going to tell us what to do. And you watch the men and women who followed that track. And they are old, burnt out, ugly, addicted people. It didn't lead to freedom. They're not throwing flower petals anymore. Are they? I'm going to tell you where freedom is. Freedom is in serving Jesus Christ. When you have Jesus Christ in your life, when you give him your heart, when the Holy Spirit fills you, you know how your, how your Lord treats you? He treats you as a son or a daughter. He teaches you and trains you. That same Lord that gave freedom to the human race to make this decision gives freedom to his children. He does not enslave you. He wants you to follow him and obey him from the heart. He wants you to know why you do what you do. He wants you to follow him willingly and joyfully. That's where freedom is. But there's only two places. What we see here at its extreme 
takes place in our own lives, in our own families. We watch this. Number three, he, he did it, I, I believe he allows this to allow the earth, the earth's cup of iniquity to fill up until God may justly act. God has a standard in his mind, and I don't know what it is. But in Genesis chapter 15, he's talking to Abraham and he says, now I'm going to give you this land, but I can't give it to you for another 400 years. Because he said the cup of iniquity of the Amorites, the people living here, isn't full yet. So I'm going to, but it will be 400 years from now. They're not bad enough yet for me to give you their land. Isn't that interesting? They're not bad enough yet, but there'll come a moment when I will drive them out. God has a standard. I, I think you, see the, you, can, you can see that standard in... You don't need to turn with me if you don't want to. I'm just going to Genesis 6 for a minute. I want to read you some verses. Here's, here was the standard that it took for him to flood the earth. Verse 5. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great on the earth and that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. Notice that? Complete rot. The Lord was sorry that he had made man on the earth, and he was grieved in his heart. And the Lord said, I will blot out the man, man whom I have created from the face of the land, from, the, from man to animals to creeping things. I'm sorry I have made them. And then in verse 11, the earth was corrupt in the sight of God, and the earth was filled with violence. And the Lord looked on the earth, and behold, it was, cor- it was corrupt. All flesh had corrupted their way upon the earth. And then the Lord said, I'm going to destroy the earth. There is a standard in God that must be reached. And so in those last 42 months, pulls his hand off, lets the earth hit a rotten point where he says, now we're done. His judgment will come. We aren't there yet. We're about three chapters away or four chapters away from it. But oh, baby, when he arrives. But he's very patient till that moment. And then finally, I believe that God allowed these 42 months to drive the world into one of two camps. It's like the world is a, is a wet towel and he just takes the thing and he wrings it out until every drop is brought out. He wrings the world out till every soul that will come to him will come to him. There won't be any fence sitting. Nobody will be in the middle. You know, you look at America now, every poll seems to have, you got people on the far right, you got people in the middle, and then you got people on the far left. You got it politically, you got it just about every way. There's sort of different groups. But what's happening, and you can already feel it in the world now, you can already sense it at work, but boy, at the end, it will really be the case. You'll, people will be forced into one of two camps. You will either love Jesus Christ to the point that you're willing to die for him, or you will hate his guts. There will be no middle wishy-washy center. No more fence sitting. You will make a choice. And here's what it comes down to. Here in, in chapter 13, it says, there'll be those who dwell in heaven. In verse 8, those who dwell on the earth. The decision whether you worship this idol that he set up, will really come down to where do you dwell? People who dwell on the earth believe this. They believe that life ends in death. This is all it really is. Life ends in death. So their motto is, 
seize the day. When you die, you're going to rot, worms are going to eat you. So you better get as much pleasure, as much power, as much, much, much as you can out of this life. Because when you die, that's the end of it. You can even find Christians who say they believe, but they behave this way. Because they really don't believe. Those who dwell in heaven believe that life begins at death. You understand? They, of course, they really believe that life begins when you receive Jesus Christ. But we're living in a difficult world. We're living in a place where we're aliens and strangers. We, I love a beautiful morning, and I love the birds singing, and I, I, you know, I, there's, I, there's lots of things about life. We're not suicidal. We're not, we're not morbid. But nonetheless, there's something inside of us that says our real life begins when we step across. You see? And so our motto isn't seize the day. Our motto is cling to Christ. And so you come along to me and you say to me, I'm going to kill you if you don't bow down to this thing. Well, if I dwell on the earth, and when you kill me, everything's over, I'm going to bow. No matter what I say, I'm going to bow, because the only thing I can hang on to is my life, man. You take that from me, and it's all gone. So I'm going to bow. I'm going to do what I have to do to stay alive. If I dwell in heaven, and I realize there is in front of me an eternity of absolute joy and bliss. You, you say, I'm going to kill you if you don't bow out of this thing. I'm thinking, oh, so I, okay, here's my choice. Another 10, 20 years of this joy, or, <laughs> you know, or I get eternity with Christ. 10 or 20 more years of a bad hip and a bad back and <laughs> more indigestion, and, or do I get eternal life with Christ? It's a no-brainer. You got it? And it is. That's why they're doing it. When you look at this period of time, and we're going to see more of it, there comes multitudes of people out of this thing dying for their faith. Tells us how many of them die. They get beheaded for whatever reason. Know how that? It's not a bad way to go, I guess. Somebody said, "Hope it's quick." In Daniel chapter 3, you have an, an early Antichrist. The, the first, one of the first, actually, the first Antichrist the Bible names is, is, is Nimrod. Um, and he built the Tower of Babel. I just was looking in, the, in my Bible dictionary, and I came across the ruins of the Tower of Babel. And it's in a place called Birs, B-I-R-S, which I don't know what it is, hyphen Nimrud. I'm just, I, I knew it. Nimrod was the first Antichrist. Well, one, an, an early wannabe was Nebuchadnezzar. And he's the first of Daniel's four beasts. Only God fights with, with Nebuchadnezzar and actually wins him in the long run. That's why it says that that beast in time was given the mind of a man. Remember that? The beast was taken out of him, and, and, and Nebuchadnezzar became a believer in the end. But he tried to be an Antichrist. Daniel let me step back. Nebuchadnezzar had a dream. You recall that? 
And he wanted his wise men and his soothsayers and all to tell him the truth. And so he says, I'm going to test you. I'm not going to tell you my dream. You have to tell me the dream and its interpretation. Then I know you'll really know. Well, no one could. And uh, then he said, here's what I'm going to do. If you can't tell me, I'm going to take all the wise men of Babylon and I'm going to tear you limb from limb and I'm going to make your house a a pile of rubble. That was what he always said. And that was kind of, you know, the queen of hearts. Off with her heads. Well, he, he, he was, I'm going to tear you limb from limb and make your house a pile of rubble. Well, they came after Daniel to arrest him, to kill him. And he said, uh, you know, what's up? Can I have a little time to uh, pray about this? And the Lord gave him the dream and the interpretation. And he went to Nebuchadnezzar. He said, I've got your dream and interpretation. And he said, here's what you dreamed, O king. You saw a great statue. And its head was gold. And its chest was silver. And its belly and thighs were bronze. And then its legs were iron. And its feet were iron mixed with clay. And he said, then, O king, you saw a great rock cut out of a mountain without hands. In other words, God did it. And that statue was crushed on its feet, ten toes, on that kingdom. And it was completely destroyed. And he said, here's the interpretation, O king. You are the head of gold. You are the most glorious king. But then a kingdom will come after you, which happened to be the Medo-Persians, will come after you, and then after them will come the Greeks, Alexander the Great and his, his, his bunch, and then the Antichrist's kingdom at the end. And, and he said, the king, here's what happened. Nebuchadnezzar didn't like the interpretation. And he says, wait, 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 wait. What's this with the silver and the, and the bronze? I don't want them in my statue. I want to be, I want you to tell me that my kingdom goes forever. That my kingdom is, is, is all me. And so he built a statue on the plain of Dura. And it was 90 feet high. And it was, and it was nine feet wide. You know what the statue was. It was him, ugly Nebuchadnezzar. And you know this, it was all gold, right? You know, this is a defiance. I mean, he is just absolutely defying God. You're not taking my dynasty away. You're not taking mine away. Everybody will bow to me forever. And so then he called for all the leaders. So you've got under not only tens of thousands of people on the plain of Dury. It's way out in the... So you've got a big flat space. And then it says, when they, when they play the bagpipes and the trumpets and the drums and when all of them make, make music, everybody's to bow down and worship my idol. And so they played the music and boy, everybody hit the deck. Everybody who dwells on this earth, who to lose my life is to lose everything, down they went to worship this stupid thing. Only three men stood there feeling oh so tall. <laughs> and there were watchers, of course, watching to see who went down and who did not. Well, Nebuchadnezzar liked Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. That was their names. And he said, I'm going to give you another chance. I don't think you heard the music maybe here. And <laughs> just going to play it again, boys, you know. And, and, and they said to him, King, oh, King, you don't need to bother because we're not going to bow no matter how many times you play it. Our God is able to save us because he's got this fiery chamber and he's got it over there and he's going to throw anyone into the fire. I mean, is this Antichrist? You see, this Nebuchadnezzar is doing his best to be an Antichrist right now. I mean, he's just living out the spirit. He says, I got this chamber. And they said, 
even if you kill us in there, our, our God can protect us, but even if he does not, we still will not bow. Why? Because we have eternity waiting for us, O king, and you're not taking it from us. It says the king got so mad that his face contorted. Uh. And he says, heat that thing seven times hotter. And they, they heated it up so hot. And then they tied him up in their, in their robes and turban and all, all clothed up, tied him up and carried them. And the strong soldiers carried them. And the, the thing was so hot, radiating such heat, that the soldiers who were carrying them died trying to get them into the thing. So I don't know how many it took to get them in there. Uh, but they finally dumped them into the thing. But an odd thing happened. In the chamber, they were just walking around. And, and he looked in, and he said, how many did we throw in there? And they said, three. He said, I see a fourth. And the fourth is like a, like a son of God. Jesus was there with them. And he says, come out of there, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And they came walking out, and it said they didn't even smell like smoke. I smell like smoke when I barbecue. They didn't even, they didn't even smell like smoke. They just walked out just as clean as, clean as they, you know, nothing would happen. And, then, and this is one of the things God used to turn Nebuchadnezzar's heart from his Antichrist spirit. It took a little more. He wasn't done. He needed seven years in the garden, if you recall. Chained up like, like Fido. You know, yeah. God took his mind from him and let him run around the yard and his fingernails grow and his hair like feathers, etc. It took a bit to get Nebuchadnezzar in place. But in time, a mind of a man was given to him instead of the mind of a beast. That was greatly merciful, wasn't it? God spared him. God spared him. What would you do on the plain of Dura? What would you do? Because I don't know when this is coming. You can see things lining up. I hope it's not in our life. Some people say we, it'd be wonderful to be part of the last days and persecution is good for the church. Well, fine. I just as soon repent now, you know. You don't have to do that to me to get me to repent, you know. If you have to do that to you to repent, then whatever. But I, I don't want to join you in that party. But what would you do now? If there's stat, because there's going to be another statue, that Antichrist spirit's coming back and it's going to express itself again. And there's going to be a statue, and you're going to have a choice: will you bow or will you not bow? There'll be a demonic presence, enormous. The pressure, the pressure will be strong. What would be your choice? Well, if you dwell on the earth, if this is all you got. I don't care what you say and how much religious talk comes out of your mouth. You're going down to save your neck. But if in your heart you have received Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, if and that inner witness is there, you know eternity's waiting for you. Then the, the thought of giving up eternity and a life with Jesus Christ and your loved ones in the Lord for a few more years on this ugly demon-possessed environment you wouldn't trade it in for a minute. We had four of our brothers, uh, maybe it was this, I, uh, who died in, in Turkey recently. They were Bible, selling Bibles and they slit their throats. Fourth one just died in the hospital a little bit ago. One of the women in our church, her, her uh, children are in Turkey as missionaries right now. They're coming, they're coming home on break. But this has been quite a big deal in, in Turkey. The Turkish people realize what's coming. This militant Islam is trying to drag them back into this thing where you cut people's throats for their faith. 
those men and women had to have made a decision long before that. Selling Bibles in an Islamic country is not the safest occupation you can think of. Why would they do it? Why'd they do it? Because they're not afraid to die. And because the love of God constrains them to tell lost people about the salvation Jesus Christ offers. It's pretty real, isn't it? The choice is there. And as the world goes on, you're either going to get in or you're going to get out. You have no choice. The forces are at work. Aren't we glad that we can choose him now? Amen. Aren't we glad that we can say, Jesus Christ, I give you my life. I choose all now. I don't need a statue. I bow my knee. I will only bow my knee to you, Jesus Christ. I will never, ever bow it to another. Thanks for listening. If you like this podcast, please click the like button, subscribe, and share it with a friend. For more information, just head to our website, lifelessonspublishing.com. That's lifelessonspublishing.com. There you'll be able to order many of the books Pastor Steve has written.